Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 48 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I'm your co-host, Mary, and tonight I'm joined by the guy who predicted Pete Alonzo would win the Home Run Derby, and also the most awesome Civil War nerd I know, Darren Weeks. Wow, Pete Alonzo talks. I think we hear about St. Peter of Bourne today, Mary, but here we are. I just want you to know I pay attention. You do. You do. Pete Alonzo, the New York Mets, um, University of Florida, played for my beloved Bourne Braves, and he won the Home Run Derby for the second consecutive time, so good for him and good for everybody else. So, um, So how are you here on this rainy Tuesday night in both of our locales. Yes, I'm good. I'm waiting for a gigantic thunderstorm to possibly roll in. So hopefully we can get the podcast recorded before it does. Um, well, if it, if it starts raining really, really bad, just remember if it rains, if this rain keeps up, it won't come down. Remember <laughs> that. Fucker. I guess we can get started here. Get rolling. Get a little fun. Well, how are you? I didn't ask oh, you how you are. Oh, you, oh, thanks for asking, as a matter of fact. I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. Um, <laughs> things of life, life is good. Life is good. We're going to take it back east today. We're going to move it back out to the east coast, and we're going to talk more about some of this stuff. But I know we, as usual, we're going to have some business to do, as always. We do. Well, the first thing is that we are wearing our merch tonight, our T-shirts as well. That's so. right. That's right. All right. Civil yes. War Breakfast Club T-shirts, courtesy of Zazzle, where yeah. you can get all of your Civil War Breakfast Club needs, Mary. Except, of course, except the stickers. stickers. We should go to TR Historical, which someone forgot to tweet when she made the tweet this <gasps> afternoon, and I had to correct. But, hey. I'm just happy to be part of the team. Thank you for having my back. I, I do my best. Fucker. I do my best. <laughs> you know, getting, getting sick of carrying you, but that's okay. We'll get through it. We'll get through it as always. Anyway, what are you drinking tonight and out of what mug? I am drinking a local beer called Provincetown Double Rainbow Beer, which is really, really good. It's a double IPA from up the coast here uh, from where I live. And I am drinking it out of my North Civil War Champions Coffee mug because even though this battle did not ultimately lead to a Union victory, it ultimately won the war, even though it lost the battle. So I felt it was appropriate to, to have this mug going today. What about you? I am drinking Haze Mama New England IPA from Great Lakes Brewery uh, based out of Toronto. And I'm drinking it out of my Ride with the Winner mug, which John LaRoe of LaRoe Designs is very nice and he sent us each one of these so you can buy those on redbubble they're really really cool mugs with a really cool flag design on them and like you i picked that one because even though wallace really isn't the winner here he kind of is uh-huh. well i have to tell you you redeemed yourself for this intro really? after that last the last one speaking of redemption stories we're going to sort of talk about tonight we do. redemption story when we talk about lou wallace when we talk about the battle of monocacy yep. back in 1864 towards the end so interesting battle and like we said before it's one of the most if not the most underrated battles in the entire civil war in my opinion with huge ramifications ultimately mm-hmm. um it's, it's a, a story- lot like a ball's bluff in that way that you don't think of you know ball's bluff nobody ever thinks to look at that one mm-hmm. but when you look at the ramifications especially the political ones. And it's like, holy shit, monocacy in studying it is a lot like that. Well, they were ultimately a army who put themselves in front. I don't want to say sacrifice themselves, but put themselves as a speed bump in the way to slow down this onslaught by Jubal Early, who was hell bent on taking Washington. And it was a small army that held up for nine hours. And because of that, this battle is called the battle that saved Washington. And it's not hyperbole when you look at the details of this. And a lot of people don't really study into this one as much. A lot of people certainly don't visit it. I was there last a month or two ago, and I was with my friend Bill. We were the only ones there Mm -hmm. the entire time we were there. So people don't visit it, but it's certainly one that needs to be studied. And what a great idea that we do it tonight. Exactly. 
Yeah, we're right around the anniversary of it in Fort Stevens. And but I think before we get into the battle, we kind of have to set the stage for what's going on in the summer of 1864 in the Civil War. So the big thing that's looming is the 1864 election. And that Mm -hmm. is on not just Abraham Lincoln's mind. It's on the mind of General Grant. It's on the mind of General Sherman, who is in the Western Theater, uh, currently on his Atlanta campaign and chasing down Joseph E. Johnston, who I think in just a few days' time, it will be the anniversary of when John Bell Hood replaces him. I think I'm getting that right. Mm -hmm. As well, you know, obviously Robert E. Lee. It's on his mind, too. And that is going to play into what he is going to ask Jubal Early to do here. Now, just quickly, General Grant is, he's in the East now, General Meade, and with the Army of the Potomac, and he is into his overland campaign. Yeah, so so set the stage militarily. So Grant is dug in around Petersburg. Lee is dug in in the same area, and they're kind of staring at each other. That's what they do, apparently. <laughs> Lincoln's sitting in Washington, D.C., and he is freaking out, borderline fetal position about this 1864 election. Now, good news for Lincoln is Sherman's doing his thing in Atlanta. He's he's doing okay, you know, and Grant has got entrenched, but he's kind of hit that that standoff with him. So Jefferson Davis, he's sitting there in Richmond as well, trying to figure out what the hell is going to go on here. The clock is running towards the 64 election, so time is on his side, sort of. Now, he's got issues, problems himself, okay, and that issue is that Shenandoah Valley. Yep. The Shenandoah Valley is the area of Virginia where – is the breadbasket. That's where most of the food comes from. And by this point, both Grant and Sherman, for that matter, are cutting off supply lines to try to bleed out, starve, and, you know, to the Confederacy. So Davis knows he has to keep the Shenandoah Valley free of feds because he has to keep that food source open, or that's it. We talked a lot about the supplies at the last episode the retreat from Gettysburg. This is even bigger because it's the whole valley right there in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now, John C. Breckinridge. We've talked about him before. He's holding under rebel control. Henry Halleck, going back to Washington, D.C. real quick, he has been bumped down, Mary, to Lincoln's chief of staff mm-hmm. because U.S. Grant has been promoted to general-in-chief of the Army. And Halleck is telling Lincoln, listen, this stalemate in Petersburg, I mean, we're getting reports of this butcher bloodshed going on. And all these guys getting killed is ain't going to help the election polls. So we got to get this thing done. How about we send some troops from D.C. down to Petersburg because they're sitting around doing nothing. They're doing some whittling, mm-hmm. playing a little bit of Twister. You know, who knows, who knows what <laughs> going they're doing. Going to the doing. DQ. But they're going to the DQ. But the reality is they're sitting around and they're idle and we could really use them down in down in Petersburg. Now, Abraham Lincoln, as we know, has been scared to death of having Washington, D.C. exposed. For most, The one consistent thing about Lincoln is that he always told his generals to make sure Washington is protected. Yeah. But he understands the situation. He says, well, Lee is buried in Petersburg. He ain't going anywhere. There's no one going to challenge Washington. We can probably send troops down to Petersburg if it's going to expedite that situation. We have some local home guard who will take care of it. And I think, I think we're good. Grant, like I said, he's digging in. And he's just begging Lee to attack him. He, but Lee, of course, won't do it because he's smart about it. He knows. So it begins that siege that goes on and on and on. Like I said before, Lee is hearing from Davis, whatever the hell you do, you got to keep that valley clear. You have to do it, yep. especially because we're approaching that harvest time now. It, 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 now is the time. Of, if there was ever a time to do it, now is the time. So Lee is going to send out fun lover Jubal Early to go really to go up to the valley and, pu- and push out Union Generals David Hunter and Franz Siegel out of that area. 
because defending Richmond makes no sense if you're going to starve to death. So what the hell is the freaking point? Yeah. So he tells Early, go up there, clear the valley, go threaten Maryland, make a feint towards Washington. Yeah. Because if you do, it's going to have some benefits. Now, he knows a pain in the ass like Jubal Early is the perfect guy to do it. He just is. Exactly. I mean, the he, interesting thing about Early is he was opposed to secession. And then Virginia well, we'll seceded, and he was like, early. fuck that, you know. Well, we'll, we'll talk about him. He was, you know, from a blue blood family of Virginia. We'll, we'll talk with old Jubal here in a little bit. Lee knows that this, this 1864 election is looming. They, like, to your point, they all know it. So Early's raid could push the North into absolute panic. If, if he gets up there, if he's, if he's up there running around and he's near Washington or Baltimore around election time, it can cause all kinds of problems. It could, in essence, win this war for the Confederacy if Lincoln loses. So mm-hmm. you, you want to get a good fear in them. Now, Jubal, he isn't liking this plan too much. He's like, oh, Jesus, really? I'm, he's, he's lukewarm at the beginning, but he ultimately does agree to do it. And Lee pressures him. Listen, here's the deal, Jubal. It's important. He goes, you cannot screw this up. You have to succeed on this plan. You got to go up there. You got to clear the valley, and you have to try to put a spook into old Lincoln because that th- that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. If you do, it's going to also pull some troops away from Richmond. I mean, from from Petersburg, which is what we need. Now, Jubal Early. I'll talk about him real quick. Lee's bad old man. One of the better nicknames in the yeah. Civil War. He got that nick- nickname because he was short, had a bad temper, he was profane. So you know he was partially Canadian. <laughs> and, and he allegedly is the only person that's allowed to swear in front of Bobby Lee. Yes. Now, who knows if that's true, but that's the rumor. So he could F-bomb. So again, he's... So it's kind of like me on this know. podcast? And I was going to say, he, it's, you know, it's like Jubal Mary. You know, same, same exact <laughs> thing. You know, he's born, like I said, he's born in Franklin County, Virginia. And he's a, from a blue blood Virginia family. He a, attends a, a snotty little private school in Franklin County. He's the first boy in his county to go to West Point. He gets that appointment thanks to his father, admittedly. Graduates 18th in the class of 50 from 1837 with guys like none other than Joe Hooker and William French and the great Braxton Bragg. Yep. Um, Pemberton's there. Pemberton, yeah, they're all there. The, the, the dream team has a plate broken over his head by Low Armistead, <laughs> and Armistead gets booted out of school for it. So... You could tell all these names that are familiar with Civil War people are all are all <laughs> at this point. He's going to finish up. He's going to join the Third U.S. Artillery. He's going to go down to fight the Seminoles on a Florida for a little while. He's going to quit the Army in 1838. He's actually going to study law. He passes the bar in 1840. Now, can you imagine? You need to go to court and jubile early as your lawyer. Just think, let that sink in for a second. He but looks that's like what an happened. Angry, angry person. I'm sure he's really good. Like he'd be a good prosecutor. Did you say Ute? You know, I can only imagine <laughs> imagine that. You know, he's going to go back in the military. He's going to join that first Virginia Volunteers. He's going to go fight in Mexico. He didn't join the Confederacy immediately, to your point. He was kind of neutral. He's like, I don't know, you know. But he loses his shit when Lincoln calls up those volunteers. He calls up those 75,000 volunteers to squelch the, rebel- the rebels in South Carolina after Sumter. And he says, the hell with this, and joins the Confederacy. He's going to join the Virginia militia as a brigadier general. Later, he'll be a colonel of the 24th Virginia. He's going to get his star after that first bull run. He's all set now. He's got 15,000 guys. He's going to do it. He's going to take them from Petersburg, and he's going to head him into the valley. Now, he has two corps by John Breckeridge, mentioned, and Robert Rhodes. Now, he's going to pick up Breckeridge here in a little bit. He doesn't quite have him just yet, but he's going to, he's going to get him. And he has cavalry with Robert Ransom, artillery with the guy named Floyd King as well. Jubal's a bitter old man, Mary. Okay, yeah. He wants to beat David Hunter personally. He doesn't like Hunter because Hunter 
did that self-emancipation proclamation yeah. in 1862. And Early was a big slave guy and he wanted nothing to do with that. It was rescinded. It didn't happen. But Early never forgot that. He, wa- he wanted to beat him as he clears the valley. June 17th, 1864 is kind of when it all gets started. Now, we're going to real quick talk about the lead up to Monaco. So you're not going to go too much crazy. Yeah. Battle of Lynchburg happens. This is when Early meets up with Breckenridge, I mentioned before. This mm-hmm. is when they kind of get together. They chase the feds and Hunter from the valley. They send them to West Virginia. The delight of the locals, because Hunter was a bastard. And after he's gone, it really clears Early's plan to get into Maryland now, because he's got no one in front of him. Yeah. So his primary goal, right off the bat, to clear the valley is kind of already done. That's kind of done. Phase two now is to march on Washington and scare Lincoln. So now he's got Breckenridge. Yeah. His army is up to about 15, 18,000 people, give or take. Now this army is called the Army of the Valley. So, ooh, okay, yeah. so that's what they're called. And, and they're going to continue to move on as they head towards Martinburg, Virginia, which is now West Virginia. They're going to push those federals out. So wherever they go now, the feds are going to be are going to be vacating the dance floor, to your point, right? Yeah. Early felt he really did at this point like the entire future of his country was in his hands. He's having success, and he's jewel early, mm-hmm. and his head's swelling a little bit. <laughs> and he now he's getting this George Washington syndrome where he thinks, okay, this whole thing is in my hand. They're going to enter Maryland for the third time. And so perhaps third time will be the yep. charm for old Jubilar. Yeah. But, but just before that, um, he goes to fuck with Franz Siegel mm-hmm. at Harper's Ferry. And uh, when he's there, Siegel, he, he and Siegel end up just basically staring at each other the entire time. Early's troops are going to totally ransack Harper's Ferry and fuck with the Union supplies and all that. And then just when I think Siegel's thinking, my God, how much is... Is he going to like attack me and, and fuck me up here? Early turns and goes just like you know, that. The feds, are, the feds are burning the bridge at Harper's Ferry too. Yeah. They, they yeah. fired that up pretty good. So so now Early is in Maryland and he's there hooting and hollering with that rebel yell and causing yeah. all kinds of pain in the ass. Enter the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad in Baltimore. Okay. This is the oldest railroad in the country, by the way, Mary. And the president was a guy named John Garrett. Now, Garrett is one of these dudes in Washington, D.C., who's respected by everybody. He's in all the social circles. He's Everyone knows who John Garrett is. Well, he's going to report from his employees that the Rebs are in a large mass, more than 10,000 people, and they are tearing up his railroad. They're cutting down the telegraph lines mm-hmm. west of Baltimore, causing all kinds of problems, Okay. Garrett, of course, is stunned by this because they don't they they don't expect anybody to be up in that area. He sends a telegram to Washington telling them of this large rebel force. Now Lincoln must have had that pucker effect right <laughs> off the bat when he heard here's this one, because he's already scared to death of of Washington D.C. falling. Yeah. He's also knows he doesn't have anybody protecting Washington. Because don't forget he'd agreed to send those troops down. Exactly. So he he has not much guard Washington D.C. He's he, he's you know it ain't, it ain't much. So Lincoln quickly realizes that he has a political and a military problem on his hands mm-hmm. right in his friggin' backyard just months before the election. So this is the this is this is the nightmare for for, for Lincoln right off the bat. Exactly. But Halleck so, and Grant don't believe it's it's a threat. Well, like Grant is saying, no, no, no. Early's still here at Petersburg in Richmond area. They, they don't. So when Grant gets that telegram, he looks at him and goes, "No, this is this is ridiculous." So yeah. Grant Halleck, they 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 just, there's no way this report is true. They're convinced Early is still in Petersburg. There's no way he he's through the valley, which surprised me because Hunter fought him. You think Hunter would you know say something? Oh, by the way, I got my ass kicked by mm-hmm. Jubal Early well, today. Se- but- Siegel sends a message to say they're they're here. 
they're, yeah. they're, they're coming. And again, it's completely like Grant's like, no, 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 it's okay. Early's still here. You know, well, what's funny is Grant goes, Grant says, well, if it's anybody, it's Yule and I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's early. He thinks, he thinks it's Richard Yule, if it's even true. But then what he does is he has some prisoners in Petersburg mm-hmm. and he gathers them together and they say, oh yeah, it's Jubal Early's up there. It's just so you know, it's early. Mm-hmm. So now, now he realizes it's early. And so he knows it's a tough situation. So July 4th, 1864, Early's, like to your point, they're sitting at Harper's Ferry having a great old time, having yep. a big bash, emptying pictures paper with the old rabbit hole gastro pub, which I've been many times. <laughs> That's probably where, probably where they are. And from South Mountain, those signal post guys, those wigwag dudes, are starting to see the rebel columns now. Okay. Yep. So that area falls under a jurisdiction of a place called the Middle Department, which covers that Delaware, Baltimore, Frederick, that whole area. Yep. Not the most creative name, and the guy who designed the Japanese flag was more creative than the guy who made this name, <laughs> admittedly. You know, but that that area of the middle control, the middle department is under control by a guy named General Lou Wallace. Yes. We've talked about before. Misfit now Wallace from Shiloh. Misfit from Shiloh. He's from Indiana. Okay. For he's a son of David Wallace, not the guy from the office. So don't ask. <laughs> Different David Wallace. He's not a West Pointer, which is going to be an issue for him going forward with a lot of these politicians. But he's a staunch unionist. He's a, he's a big-time patriot. The fact that he wasn't a West Point made him hated spe- specifically by guys like Halleck, just didn't like him. Grant's not a big fan and, of his either. Well, you mentioned that because of Shiloh. So Shiloh, we mentioned before, but we, we talked about this before. Yeah. Lou Wallace had a great time at Fort Donaldson, did really, really well. But Grant blames Wallace, quotation fingers, scapegoat for Shiloh yep. because he had that slow arrival on that first day. Now, after Shiloh... He gets put in the corner, to your point, for a while. He doesn't really get to do anything. He gets blamed for Shiloh for a couple, a couple of different reasons, which is, makes absolutely no sense. Was He got his orders from Grant to come down, but Grant sends his quartermaster to find him and give him the orders instead of a messenger. Yeah. So now they're running out of they're running out of bullets, ammo because they have no the quartermaster's gone, and he's got to walk. He has to march six miles an hour in the mud to get there. That's what Wallace yep. had to do with Shiloh, right? He doesn't get there in time. He's supposed to be there in the morning. He gets there late on the day. They get their asses kicked yep. on the first day. He needs someone to blame. He's going to blame Wallace. Mm-hmm. And, and Grant, as we know, you know, he's going to blame you for a long time with this stuff, and he's yeah, going to pull when, that when crutch. When you get put in Grant's doghouse, unless in this, I'm sorry, I have to say, it, unless your name is William Tecumseh Sherman, because mm-hmm. he was caught off guard at Shiloh, unless your name is William Tecumseh Sherman, you're not coming out of that doghouse for a little while. And I love but, Grant, so, but yeah. there is that about him. So Wallace basically gets put in the corner, and he has no command, really, of, of, of guys in the field. This is a guy who's proud. He's a patriot. He's a unionist. Oh, he wants he to is. fight. He wants to fix his reputation because his reputation is completely shit And he and is he knows so, it. he's so bitter after what's happened to him. Like, he writes his wife just before Monocacy. Soon will be heard the, the sound of the trumpet and the shout, and I will not be there. And that's Wallace writing to his wife, and he's very bitter. And he's he's all of 34 years old at the time of Monocacy. So April 6th, 1864, which is ironically the two-year anniversary of when he screwed up at Shiloh, yeah. he's going to get another shot. He's going to get a shot at this this middle department. It's part of the 8th Corps is what it is. Uh, we talked about Robert Milroy a couple weeks ago, who was also part of this middle department, similar group. His focus is Baltimore. You know, his job primarily at this point, because Baltimore's under martial law, to just be there, don't let the town riot 
we want to keep the peace heading into the election. That's kind of what his job mm-hmm. is. And he's like, okay, well, I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. Um, but Wallace wants to fight. He wants to, he wants to redeem himself. He wants combat. His troops are not exactly the, the Iron Brigade here. His troops are green men. They call them the call them 100 day men. These are guys who are signed on for short duration, 100 days to do things like guard bridges, guard railroads. Yeah. They're not exactly fighting men. And he's got about, he's got about 2,800 guys. But these are, these guys have never seen combat. If, if there's ever a time they have to fight combat, it's going to be interesting because they never have. So mm-hmm. now Wallace, he hears this news about early in Maryland at this point. Well, he gets so it firsthand he, from John Garrett because John right, Garrett comes right, right to see him. Mm-hmm. So he, but he knows there's a real threat. And whether he really thought it or he has hoped it was so he could fight, who knows. But he, he knows he's early on the move and he's heading right towards me. He decides he's going to be the guy. So he's going to move his in, he's going to move his inexperienced army, those 2,800 day men yep. to Frederick, Maryland. And they're going to go there. He wants to put up a fight. He knows Early's got a big army because he's hearing more than 10,000 guys and he knows he can't win. He knows. But what he wants to do, I mean, he's, he's not stupid. I mean, he's just the numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though he knows he's going to get his butt kicked, he wants to delay Early long enough for two reasons. One, to see where Early's going because they don't know at this point if it's Washington, D.C. or it's Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And he also, more importantly, says, well, if it's Washington, this will buy time for the government to bring troops back up to protect the city. So that's kind of what it is in a yep. nutshell of how it's going to be. So he knows he's under no illusions he's going to win, but he wants to fight with inexperienced guys. And he's basically throwing himself into the, the mouth of the lion. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked a lot about these you know, guys like Howard and these other guys who want to redeem themselves for after these, these perceived mistakes they made. And you can see Wallace's thinking. Oh, definitely. Right? That and you know, he's that, like, you know, a hardcore unionist. And Garrett has told him, that make sure the rebels do not ca- capture that railroad, especially the Monocacy Bridge. Like he's, he emphasizes Monocacy Bridge to him. And before he leaves to go to Monocacy, Wallace tells Garrett, you may take with you, with you my promise. The bridge shall not be disturbed without a fight. So here he's like, yep, I'm going to do this. But yes, there is a definite like need to probably, you know, a little bit personal here. Mm-hmm. Just show Grant like, hey, look at me, you know. Uh, fuck you for what you've done to me with the whole Shiloh thing, but as well as the, the redemption that, you know, like, as you mentioned, you see Oliver Otis Howard do, Joseph Hooker does it as well, and now it's Wallace's time to do it. Well, and this is where you kind of, Wallace gets a little bit lucky here, okay? So yep. he's going to be riding his division out towards Frederick. He's going to run into the Sixth Corps' third division, a guy named James Ricketts from New York City. New York City, yeah. right? Ricketts is riding his division towards Harper's Ferry, and they're just looking to pick a fight. That They're just looking for a fight at mm-hmm. this point. Wallace is going to ask him, hey, um, I could sit there probably behind the, the little light post with a cigarette in his mouth. Hey, you want you want to fight? I know where I can get you a fight. So he says, why don't you come join me? Because we got Jubal early coming on the road. You want to come fight with him? And of course, Ricketts is like, oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So agree joins. Ricketts because has 3,000. He's got experienced guys. Now, these are six core guys. These are battle-tested dudes that are going to offset that 100-day men, right? So he joins. Now, Wallace has got more than 6,000 guys. Now, he's still outnumbered more than two to one. Mm-hmm. But it's but he's got more now. He's got to feel pretty good now. Old Jubal, he's more making his way through Maryland, and he's causing damage, and he's ransoming towns. He, everything he's doing gets into Frederick, Maryland. This is where Wallace decides he's going to basically set up his defense. So he's yeah. like, well, it's like you're guarding those bridges. He's going to guard the Monocacy River, which is about five miles from Frederick. Now, what's interesting is while 
the Confederates are slowly moving into the t- into this area because they're hearing rumors of federal troops. They don't know what the hell they are, but they're hearing they're hearing stuff. Jubal is back in town trying to bag two hundred grand off the locals, right? Which is like three million in today's money. It is. And so and so he's out there and he's ran, and they, the event the thing is he eventually gets it, right? In the town, it's funny is that the guy. The mayor of the town, I think his name was Cole, I think it yeah. is. He's delaying him because he's like, I think this troops, I'm hoping back and buy some time. But yeah. whatever happens, he finally pulls out the checkbook and says, here, go. Yeah. And the troops end up blowing in the town. Oh, yeah. They bring it out to them in wicker baskets. This is well, like, you know, just a little bit ahead here. You know, when Early finds out the, the battle's going on, he he leaves town and he leaves it to his staff to to get this money. And they bring it out to him in these wicker baskets. And then the guys proceed to be like, hey, let's spend some of this. So they're buying fucking fancy food, champagne. They're getting ice cream at the DQ. Um, and no, that's a true story. The, these guys did actually get ice cream while they were, were in Frederick. But they start just spending this money. Now, he's collected tribute at a couple other different towns. No word, though, if this money ever does get back to Robert E. Lee or if... You know, early is keeping it for himself. Well, he, he must have banked because he, he got money a lot of places. But so July 8th, the day before the battle, Wallace is sitting in a place called the Cromus Farm south of Fredericksburg. This is where Early is starting to realize more that there are troops. Now he doesn't like I said, he doesn't know what the hell they are. He thinks they're local militia. He there's no way in hell it's Army of the Potomac because they're all back in Petersburg, just like they all thought he was back in Petersburg. Wallace is gonna learn of Breckenridge's troops moving down that Georgetown, that Washington Pike towards Monocacy. He's going to see these guys coming. And he knows that Early is targeting Washington at this point. So he's like, okay, right off the bat, he goes, that was one of his deals. Which, where is he going? Now he knows they're coming down that Georgetown Pike towards Washington. They're coming to Washington. So he's going to set up his army um, along the Monocacy River to protect that road and the railroad bridge to the capital. Because if they get in the capital, they're going to cause all kinds of problems, and they're not going to stay there probably long. But they're going to, it's going to be a it's going to be a big big mess. So the sun sets, the sun rises. It is July 9th, eighteen sixty four, yeah. Anocracy Junction, Promus Farm again, eight a.m. Right after breakfast, the Rebs are going to open some artillery uh, on the camp of one hundred fifty first New York, and this is the beginning of the Battle of Monocacy. So. The, the Union is sitting there having breakfast, and all of a sudden, this, they're getting shelled. Federal, art, federal artillery under Captain Frederick Alexander is going to respond to it, and that Sixth Corps is going to skirmish, is going to start to push forward these skirmishers, right? Now, the First Brigade under a guy named William Truex is going to defend that central bridge we talked about yeah. that crosses the Monocacy River under the, where the Baltimore Turnpike is. Now, Early is going to order Rhodes' guys, Robert Rhodes, okay, one of his division guys, or actually one of his core guys, theoretically, to demonstrate on that covered bridge. Because what they want to do is now Early's concerned. He goes, I don't know what's in my front. So let's just see who the hell's out there and fight. So by nine o'clock, they're fighting a place called the Best Farm. Mm-hmm. Now it's named after the Best Family. It just wasn't the Best Farm in town. Name. <laughs> okay, so, you know, I, don't, I can't explain. But coming from the north, down that Georgetown, that Washington Pike is going to be Stephen Dodson Ramsar. These yeah. are Virginia and North Carolina guys under Rhodes. And they're going to hit those first line of those skirmishers, okay? They're going to hit the 10th Vermont, and they're going to push them back pretty easily. Now, Early, he wants to see what's going on on the other side because he still doesn't know what he's dealing with. He's going to order his cavalry under a guy named John McCausland to ford the river, find a place to ford south of the best farm, and attack that Union left flank. At least see what the hell is going on. Because he knows I can't can't have a direct attack at the middle because I don't know what I'm dealing with. I just don't. I think they're militia, but I don't know. We'll find out. But Causland does find a ford 
in a place called McKinney Ford, yep. which is right near a place called the Worthington Farm. Now, the Worthington Farm, still there, actually. You go visit yep. it. it. It's a place that's it's a big old house. Um, it's just west of modern-day 270, so the, it's which is kind of a shame if you visit it because you know, that's you know a road a road runs through it. Yeah, that, that's how the battlefield is. The highway goes right in the middle of it, which kind of sucks. But but by ten o'clock in the morning, Wallace is sitting in a place called Gambrel's Mill, which is east of the Georgetown Pike, and he's behind the line. He's getting reports on his left flank that there's rebel activity. So he tells Ricketts. Now Ricketts is a regular; he's a Six Corps guy to go defend his left and hold it as, as long as he can, just, just hold it, because he learns that, that rebel, those rebel forces is moving on to his left. He's going to find a fence, and he's going to place his army on that fence. And in yep. front of that fence is a cornfield that leads to the um, the Worthington farm. Yeah, and the interesting thing about McClausen's men is that once they, they cross, they actually dismount. One thing to mention here is that, you know, cavalry fight you, you typically think of them being on horses because they're cavalry by this point in the civil war they're actually fighting more and more dismounted just because of the way the battle tactics have changed so where ricketts men are with this cornfield and all that the sight line for the confederates is really obscured so what happens is they the confederates don't realize that there's their union troops in front of them until they fire at the rebels from 125 yards away and the Confederates, like once the smoke clears from all that, the Confederates who had not been struck down in that, they start retreating. So Ricketts' men manage to push back McClausen's men. And this is what keeps happening at this battle all over is just like they, even though Wallace and, you know, Ricketts are outnumbered, they manage to keep pushing them back and pushing them back and just well, running McCaus- down. And the whole time, though, every for every hour that passes, that is another hour that Jubal Early cannot be making his way to Washington, D.C. And that's what's so important about this battle is like every hour matters here. Well, McCausland is a real deal cavalry guy. Yeah. He's up there with the Mosby's. I mean, he's he, I mean, people don't really study him. They call him Tiger McCausland. Real quick, a little background on him. This Missouri guy went to VMI, became a professor of mathematics, just like you at University of Virginia. In 1859, Mary, he and a guy named Thomas Jackson from VMI, I don't know if you've heard of him, he commanded a bunch of VMI cadets to go basically stand guard at the execution of John Brown in Charlestown, West Virginia. So he, he's got some experience with that. During the war, he takes command in 1864, that cavalry. He participates in that thing with David Hunter with Lynchburg we talked about, obviously. He's going to join Jubal Early's cavalry for that for this Valley campaign. You know, he's, this campaign is going to go on well after this battle. But this is the dude who's going to burn Chambersburg. Yeah. In late July of 1864, they don't pay him a hundred grand, so he's like, "Okay, we're gonna torch. He <laughs> torches the whole town." But it's interesting about him, though, is he actually gets tried for this after the war, mm-hmm. and they're gonna put him away for this. But he gets pardoned by President U.S. Grant for this, which is kind of weird. That I was, wow. you know, it's just a strange thing. And when he died in 1917, yeah, he was the he was the last confirmed rebel general to die. He was the last one. You mentioned before those things now. They think they're going up against a local militia. Yep. And what's interesting in these Ricketts dudes, right? They're told literally, do not fire until you see CSA on their belt buckle. Yep. That's mm-hmm. what they're told. And that's what they do. Right. And they do. They they ultimately go three times. They hit the first time, get pushed back pretty quick. The second time they try to go around to the right to a place called the Thomas Farm. Yes. And they're going to get driven back by the 87th Pennsylvania. These are six core guys. So they're starting to think, okay, something's up here. At this point, just west of the bridge, Wallace's guys are retreating. So this is simultaneously. So at this point, 
Wallace's guys are retreating because Ramsey's guys are coming. So that covered bridge, they're going to burn it. They're going to fire it up so people can't cross. Mm-hmm. Now, Early is going to hear what's going on on McCausland's side. He's going to say, what the hell? They're freaking militia. What? Why can't you push through them, right? Because their initial, their very first attack, they put the whole damn group in. And they all came running back. Mm-hmm. He's going to order Breckenridge to his, his infantry. Just go deal, whatever. Just I, I'm sick of dealing with these guys. I need to get to Washington. I don't want to get stuck bogged down in stupid Monocacy Junction. He's going to order Breckenridge to move forward. What's interesting is that when they start to go, it's when McCausland's third attack is falling back. And what's an interesting story about this is a lot of John Brown Gordon's guys on a breakfast who are going to make this assault are laughing at the Confederate they cavalry. Are. They're saying things like, oh, you know, you, you run back to Richmond. We'll show you how real men fight. And th- th- that's just kind of funny how it was. So about 2.30 in the afternoon, John Gordon, you know him, another fun lover, Mary, yeah. he's going to attack with his three brigades. He's going to have a guy named Clement Evans, guys from Georgia, yeah. uh, Zebulon and York from Louisiana. And he's going to have a guy named William Terry, who's going to have the old Stowall Brigade yeah. under Colonel John Funk in some Virginia. So he's and going the to have Louisiana bunch- Tigers, remnants of them right. are here, too. He's going to have them, too. So he's going to have a pretty good group of guys going in. Now, Gordon's going to attack. He tells his guys, he yells at his troops. He says, I want you to fire until your gun barrels melt. That's the yep. phrase he said to them. So they're all going to march towards Ricketts' line, who was behind that fence across the cornfield. There's his experienced guys going against experienced guys. Good teams on the field now. There's two A teams going mm-hmm. at it. Two thirty in the afternoon, Gordon's men they're moving across that field towards that Thomas farm. Okay, and you can almost hear the farm. It's a Thomas farm going. Oh no! Oh no! You know, <laughs> but but they're going to be oh, going no. against. A, Guys from the, the 14th New Jersey, 151st New York, you know, 106 New York, that 87 PA who pushed back McCall's. And this is who they're going to be going against, that Thomas Farm. Some actually get across that cornfield, do. Some actually do, uh, but they get pushed back initially. Evans and York's brigades are going to get hammered by the fence. They're going to get absolutely drilled up front. They're going to come running back in confusion. It's going to be a whole bunch of casualties on Gordon's guys. Now, yep. Gordon pulls back and he's like, what in the freaking hell? Yeah, well, the fighting, the, was, the fighting was so chaotic there. He he says, as we reached the first line of strong and high fencing and my men began to climb over it, they, they were hit by a tempest of bullets and many of the brave fellows fell at the first volley. And it's not... Like the the fighting all over here is really really chaotic. It, at, not just at the Thomas Farm, but over at Worthington Farm too, where there's a six year old boy, Glenn Worthington, watching from the basement window, and he described it as being it was load and fire, load and fire, kill, 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 and that's what's happening at the the Worthington Farm. But also the same thing is happening at the Thomas Farm too. You ever hear the, the story that happened to that kid after the battle? Yeah, he uh, was nearly blinded when he went to look for a bayonet. Yeah, like in went, the fire. <laughs> I blew up, blew up in his face. And he had to wear a bandage. But, but he's the, the he wrote the first history of the battle. Or as my parents would say, that's what you get. Or see what happens. Yep. That's what would happen. That would that have been me. mine too. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so, the, so they're going across the cornfield. Now, those guys are going to get pounds. And Gordon's going to fall back and organize. Now it's about 3.30. So the day is getting long now. Gordon's like, okay. So he forms a... Uh, He's going to form the brigade of Terry, William Terry, from those Virginia guys, those Stonewall Brigade guys. And this time, they're going to finally break. They're going to break that Union line. But Gordon's going to lose a third of his division in this this field, right? Including Clement Evans. Oh, his injury. Which is that story. So this is a weird story. So he gets shot in the side. For whatever reason, he has a sewing kit in his pocket. Well, they all carried sewing kits with them. 
Okay, but it just seems, I don't know what it is. It just seems Well, weird I know you me. can't sew. It doesn't mean other people can't. Oh, it's still good, you know. <laughs> so, so he gets shot in the sewing kit, and the needles get pushed into his body. Now, he lives. He doesn't get killed here. But yep. he is going to pull needles out of him for six weeks after this. Yep. Now that you want to talk about, a and, and some day. some of that injury plagues him for the rest of his life. So you would have been the guy walking around the battlefield then with holes in your pants and shirts because you can't sew. Better than getting needles coughing up the next six weeks. I'll take my chances. You know, <laughs> you would have so, been bartering for someone to sew your I would have for you. Pull out the old credit card, buy a new pair of pants. I don't even care. Sewing, so God's sakes. Anyway, so 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 it's four thirty in the afternoon. The rebel numerical superiority is starting to win the day now. It's dictating the story. So I mentioned before, you know, a fifteen, sixteen thousand rebs yeah. against six thousand Union guys. I don't care how strong you are. Those odds, after a while, aren't going to be in your favor. Even so with my shitty mass mass skills, I know that that is not good odds. Carry the three, divide the two. Yep. Oh, crap. One, two, three, We're screwed. <laughs> you know? So Lou Wallace at this point is going to say, it's 4.30. I've held these guys all day. I've done my job. So he's going to order a full retreat. He feels he's bought enough time. because He's assuming Grant is sending guys back to Washington. So he figures he's bought enough time. After nine hours of brutal fighting, he fought like a chess master. He really, really he, did. He okay? did. He knew they um, weren't going to win. The thing is, is Wallace went into this knowing full well they were not going to win this battle. And that's why he has, you know, he already had a retreat plan in place going into this because he knew this is just about buying time to allow them to get troops to fortify DC. This is all I need to do. There's no way I can win this battle. And so because of that, he's already got a retreat plan in place. He knows that he's... His small troops have, have done the day, and they're, they're going to get beaten up pretty good. They say that he, you know, they drew back to Baltimore, but they say it was an orderly retreat. That's what they say. His moving his chess pieces around that battlefield with his 100-day guys and Ricketts' six core guys, mm-hmm. he moves pieces brilliantly, a smaller army against a battle-tested Jumal early. And that, that, it's impressive what he did. It's interesting is this, this one of the, the stories that comes out of this battle is a story of Colonel William Seward, Mary. So you can go ahead and tell that story if you've done your if you if yes, you I've done my homework on him. <laughs> I was going to say I don't know if you did it. So, so William Seward Jr., who is the son of the Secretary of State, he is there with the the ninth. Am I getting it right? Ninth heavy artillery. Yeah. Yeah. Ninth heavy artillery. So he and his men are going to be engaged in some pretty heavy fighting in this battle, and he's going to get shot down. His horse gets shot out from under him. He's going to like basically be wounded on the battlefield his leg is broken i think he'd been shot through his arm as well so he's wounded so he eventually does make his way back to his troops but they say he's not captured because before he was fighting in the in another battle and he got his uniform all just completely shot and he hadn't replaced it at that point so he was wearing kind of the you know why he was smart enough not to have a sewing kit on he didn't know how to sew that's why so he had to Borrow no someone needles. who like lower rank. So they say that's why he he doesn't get captured at this battle. Um and choking on needles. I'll, I'll take I'll take saying. But he eventually finds a mule and makes his way back to his men. <laughs> and it's a it's a great story because yeah. while this is going on, Seward, the old man back in Washington, has yep. been stories that your son has been injured and captured, right? Yep. So eventually Lou Wallace is gonna tell him, he's gonna telegraph him and say, Hey, I got good news for you. Your kid is not injured. He's not captured. He rode a mule back, yeah. which is kind of a historical hysterical story that he he finds a mule. He takes a silk handkerchief as a bridle, right? Yep. And he's going to ride off the field 
uh, ahead of the and he stays ahead of the Confederates on this. It's just one of the, it's just a, it's, just a, fun it, it's, story. a it's a really cool story. Another cool part of the story too is that years later there was a tree that had been on the battlefield and the tree ended up being cut down. Well, the men of the Ninth Heavy Artillery they end up taking part of that tree and they make like a kind of a walking stick for Seward. Um, and it's actually at the the Seward house in Albany, New York. It's not on display, but they do have it as part of their collection. But that is a tree from uh, the Battle of Monocacy Battlefield that that he was given by his men. It, it's a pretty cool story. But yeah, the funny thing is, is like <coughs> Seward's getting reports that his son's been captured and he's injured. And then Wallace is like, no, 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 he's good. And then Wallace has to go back and say, actually, he is injured. Yeah, but it wasn't that bad, though. It was no, it's okay. a broken. A broken leg's pretty fucking bad. I guess compared to other injuries, on a, sucking on a friggin' needle, <laughs> coughing that up. I think you, I think you are absolutely minimizing the effect of coughing up needles. I don't no, know what the I'm hell. Why you... But they all carried sewing kits with them. Okay, well, guess who didn't? Seward. You know what? Probably saved his life. So, or speaking, of, you know, these guys early. We mentioned before he got beaten up pretty good. He's going to lose nine hundred guys, but just but more important is he lost time. He ain't yep. got it. He's lost so much time. It's one of those battles. Where it's, a, it's a tactical victory because he forced Wallace off the fields. But you know, they were beaten up. Now they need time, so you know they have to rest. Now Early's pissed. He's like, "You got to be shitting me!" Because we got stuck fighting these guys, and now I lost the day. So now July tenth, the day after the battle, they've got to rest. They're they're messed up. They're banged up. So yep. they finally get going, and they get by ten p.m. on the tenth. They get to Rockville, Maryland, which is about 20 miles from Washington, D.C. And now on the next day on 7-Eleven, in case you know everything, the roads are wide open, yep. 24-7 on 7-Eleven, Early's advanced cavalry is going to breach the outskirts of Washington. Post-monocacy in the city of Washington is a freaking panic at this point. Mm-hmm. So all they're hearing is, we got our asses beat at monocacy, Early's coming. So the citizens are in a full panic. There are rumors of 50,000 Rebs are coming. They're advancing on the city. You know, Wallace bought time, but early still coming. Tell the whole story. Montgomery Meeks was in such a panic. He's commanding like kind of civilians in the War Department at this point. Like he's he's their boss. So these are government employees. And he ends up telling them, okay, we're shutting things down. And everybody's probably like, yay, we get to go home. And Meeks is like, no, here, take a rifle. Get up to the forts. (laughs) He's arming citizens. it, at the White House, okay, Stanton is discussing with Lincoln the concept of evacuating and going to New York City. So he's like, "Yo, you should. We should probably think about this." And Lincoln goes, "Are you kidding me? If I leave the city, it's a, for the election. It's political suicide. Yeah. I'm not going to win. I can't leave the city." But he says, "Here's the deal: if the Rebs get through, you're going to take Mary and you're going to take Tad. You're going to put them on a steamer and get them to New York City. You're going to mm-hmm. give them the help and the cabinet." Except you, Stanton, you're stuck with me. You're staying with me in, in Washington. The rest are all going to go. He's stunned because he's caught from in about a 30-day period. He's hearing stories stories of Grant on the outskirts of Richmond. Now he's got Lee on the outskirts of Washington. He's like, "What the hell happens?" Yeah. Right? He sees Monocacy Lincoln is as a complete disaster. They don't know the story, but they just know the Rebs are coming. The fate of the country is Lincoln is like, is in our hands. We've got no army to stop these guys. I am screwed. And this is good. This is it. So he needs to defend this, the capital all costs. Now, you mentioned before Montgomery Mix. He's, they're going to take all the government employees. Yep. We're talking about the clerks. No training. Here's a rifle. Go figure it out. The injured soldiers who can still walk in Washington, they're going to be sent to the front lines. They're all going. Any man in Washington who can fight 
is going to fight if they can. Yeah. They're going out there saying, we, we, we come defend the city. A lot of guys came out. Now, I mentioned before, even though there was complete panic, there was also a real enthusiasm of patriotism that very reminiscent of 9-11 here. Yep. Where everybody was in a panic, but suddenly everybody was extremely patriotic mm-hmm. and suddenly would, would run through a wall for the country. That's what Washington was turning into. You had guys with zero experience grabbing the musket. They had freed blacks uh, to dig entrenchments. They all got on-the-spot training. Here you go. Mm-hmm. You know, and They can't even load their rifle, let alone shoot it, but they're like, we're going to have to figure this thing out. Now, the Rebs, post-monocacy, that, like I said, that battle took a lot out of them. Um, and this is, again, credit towards Lou Wallace and to, and to Rickett. So mm-hmm. they're beat up. They needed that rest we talked about. But that day of rest, is they're going to rue that day. Have you, have you rued something? Have you rued the day ever? Probably. Well, this is the day Jubal Early is going to rue because this is going to be his missed chance is this day that they stopped. So yeah. Lincoln, he jumps on his iPhone. He texts old U.S. Grant down there <laughs> and, and he says, he goes, I need troops. you got to send troops here immediately. Grant gets this message. And he is pissed. He's like, you have got to be shitting me. He, he hears about Monocacy and he goes, who the hell is lost Monocacy? And they go, it's General Wallace. And he goes, that guy from Shiloh? Of course. Yeah. And he's just rolling his eyes. So they, they, he goes to me and says, hey, who, who can I send? Give me someone I can freaking trust. He goes, six core. Send six core. Yeah. So he's going to send the first two divisions under Horatio Wright to up there. So he's still blaming Wallace from Shiloh. He's got a little memories, you know. Well, you know. he actually, right after the other thing he does too, is he goes and puts Major General Ord in charge of Wallace's troops right after Monocacy. Yeah. And Wallace does not find that out until the 11th. He's still in charge of the middle department, but he's not in command of these troops anymore, which is probably like a fuck you to Grant, you know. But once officials become aware of what Wallace has done at Monocacy, he gets full command back. But that doesn't happen until July 28th. Mm-hmm. So what he'll do is he, he's going to send Horatio Wright, who's in charge of the 6th Corps. Now, he's already had the 3rd Division go up. That's Ricketts. Now, he's going to send the first two, which is going to be under a guy named David Russell and George Getty. They're going to be going to Washington, D.C., and they're going to be um, get there as fast as they can. The Beltway traffic was brutal, but they <laughs> did finally get there. I think something's never changed. This is going to be a 10,000-man infusion of experienced dudes shot in the right arm of Washington. So you're going to have three brigades on each that are going to show up. Those guys in Montgomery Megs you mentioned before, they call them the emergency division, they call yeah. them, which is kind of like the accountants and the, you know, the temp from the, uh, you know, the washroom yep. because of gun. <laughs> I knew I should have called the sick today. <laughs> Early is pissed off at losing that day. Bitter, he's got a temper, so you can tell how pissed off he is because he knows he lost the initiative. Breckenridge said, listen, we, you know, we, we had to rest. We just had to. We can't just, yeah. you know, just not freaking robots. But early is still at this point. It's like, well, all right, well, it's okay because there's still, the city is still defended by locals, militia. I think we're fine. So we'll, yeah. we'll be okay. So 1 p.m., early is so close to the city, he can see it. He can probably hear yeah, the he crowd looks, from, the, from the Nationals game cheer. He's so close. <laughs> he looks through his binoculars. You know? He can see the Capitol Dome. He, he can see it, but but he doesn't want to commit to an attack just yet, regardless. But John Gordon is kind of like, let's get him, let's get him, let's get him, let's get him. Yep. And he's like, you know what? Let's 
let's let's do it quick. Early's like, listen, let's just chill for a second. We just we don't know who the hell these people are here. Let's just take it easy. He screws up again because Early gives his guys more time to rest again. He's like, all right, it's the eleventh. Let's just chill for the night and hit That's him on the twelfth. This is when that story with Montgomery Blair's house take place, right? Yep. Which is great. I'll let you tell. It's a good drinking story. <laughs> they, so what happens is the men go to the home of Montgomery Blair and they raid his whiskey stores and they get completely shit faced. Like probably worse than what happens in Goderich on a Saturday night. <laughs> Well, no one's that bad. But this is a this is this this is not a call me maybe. Of, they 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 all get to call me maybe situation. Right. But we're talking about a basement full of barrels upon barrels yeah. of whiskey. We're not talking about a bottle bottle of you know Jack Daniels behind the the, the couch. Yeah. We're talking we're talking a whole bunch. They hit it hard, and one of the reasons why Early doesn't want to fight on the eleventh. They're tired. It's hot, but it's, a lot of his guys are drunk as hell. And he's like, God's sakes. He's like, all right, we'll, we'll wait till the next day. So there's nothing worse than being hungover when it's humid out either like that. Especially when you get shot at. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. But yeah, the other thing to mention, too, is that, you know, this area has been seeing temperatures of over 90 degrees for a few weeks during these yeah. battles, during Monocacy and the Battle of Fort Stevens as well. The morning of the 12th, Early is going to finally advance. This is the Battle of Fort Stevens. Okay, he's going to attack Fort Stevens, which is just north of the city. He looks and he's surprised because he sees six core troops defending Fort Stevens. He's like, "Friggin' six core again? Mm-hmm. How many? How many of these people are?" So Frank Wheaton's probably so, up there waving to him. He probably was, you know, <laughs> Team Wheaton. <laughs> but he was still expecting, for whatever reason, that those guys were still going to be in Petersburg. Now you had to think that everyone knew he was fighting in Maryland, going towards DC. They would have said that, but he still wasn't sure. I mentioned before how Lincoln didn't want to vacate the city. He wants to visit the front. He thinks it would be good to be seen as the president at the front. He's going to take Mary and Edwin Stanton, and they're going to go to Fort Stevens. Now, Lincoln at this point, he sees the troops. He sees the embankments. He's like, all right, you know what? I'm starting to feel okay now. I've been nervous. This might be okay. I'm feeling a lot better than than I did. He's going to climb to the parapet to see what the hell's going on. At this point, there are going to be rebel sharpshooters firing at anything. Yep. Now, they don't know who the hell they're shooting at, but they see movement, they shoot. So someone is going to take a shot at old Abe Lincoln, right? And the person who shot him probably never knew that the guy they sh- were shooting at was Lincoln, which yeah. is kind of funny. And is that report that a young Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., future Supreme Court justice, yelled to Lincoln, get down, you damn fool, to old Abe. And he did, you know what? He got down. Yep. But apparently it was also Horatio Wright that did it too. <laughs> yeah. And well, about there, 18 there was, other people. Well, there, you know, there were rumors that, you know, that Horatio Wright was shot. I mean, There's all these stories that came out of this. Bottom line is he ducked. He got down. And it's the only time in American history that a president was fired upon by an enemy in wartime. Yeah, and Horatio you know, Wright actually regretted bringing Lincoln up there because he eventually realized, like, shit, I can't guarantee this guy's safety. Yeah, if you take the guy up there to take a, a sightseeing and you get your president shot, that'd be a tough one to walk yeah, up. So like, early is going to continue to – he's going to see that what's going on. They're hot. They've been fighting. He knows at this point the dream of D.C. is over. Yep. Washington City ain't going to be ransacked. But you know I'm not going to be sitting at the old Ebbett Grill in front of that Grant picture drink my old-fashioned tonight. It ain't going to be happening. <laughs> so, so he knows. So by the end of July 12th, and we're going to do a whole story on Fort Stevens, okay? Yeah. Because there's a lot that gets into this, but we just want to get too, too deep in the weeds. By the end of the 12th, Early knows that it's over with. Because the feds are reinforced not just by the 6th Corps, but also by the 19th Corps. So you had a lot of guys there now. Yep, those so are the guys from gonna, the Gulf, right? 
I, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. I, I think Gulf of Mexico, you said yeah. Gulf for some reason. So by 5 p.m., okay, one of the brigade commanders, a guy named Daniel Bidwell, yeah. is going to attack. They're going to go out of the parapet and they're going to attack them. They're going to you know, they're going to push early off the field, but they're going to lose two or 300 guys in the, the meantime. They're going to do it. So at that point, the writing's on the wall. Early knows it's over with. So he is going to leave. He's going to cross the Potomac back into Virginia on July 13th, 1864, mm-hmm. which is exactly one year to the day that Lee did after Gettysburg, which is always funny how coincidences yep. always tend to work, tend to work out. And he had that quote where he says, we didn't take Washington. We scared Abe Lincoln like hell. Yep. And so, and you can just picture him doing that. So the defense of Washington, that Atlanta Sherman attack on really is, was kind of the, the one that really sealed election election for Lincoln. It really, really was. I mean, really, Atlanta, Atlanta probably did. Atlanta's about two one, months away, just less than two months away at this point mm-hmm. from, from, from getting it. But yeah, if you think that Early had managed to get into the Capitol, what that would have done, he wouldn't have stayed, but what that would have done for, you know, morale and just that kind of threat. You know, if he had managed to get up there and put that flag over the city, you know, even just for a little while, like that, that would have done a lot. It would have been for election purposes. I mean, every campaign commercial on TV from McClellan would have been the Confederate flag. Exactly, exactly. And that's all Lee, that's all Lee and Davis want to do is they just want to, they know they wouldn't be able to actually take the Capitol, but they just want to get in there and fuck with it just enough to, to, to get the election. But when they don't do that, I think that's when the pressure really starts to shift over to Sherman in the Western Theater and Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the most part, the Confederacy took, was, was dead. I mean, they were they were bleeding yeah. anyway, but they, they were dead. After Atlanta, yeah. was they were dead, dead, dead. But this this attack on Washington, early's attack, was, was a real mortal wound that mm-hmm. many mortal wounds they took. Now, Halleck, to his credit, Mary, he never changes. He blames Wallace for monocacy. We mentioned before he hates Wallace because he's yeah. a West Point guy. He just, just didn't like him. Now, Lincoln also sent a vinegar valentine to u.s grant about wallace you know down at petersburg yeah uh, explaining that now this is where it, it's funny the media picks up this basically picks up the ball to really help to explain the story of what wallace actually did yeah the new york tribune horace greeley you know with the hair there yeah he writes that wallace held out for four hours longer than honor required so there was a national p- push redemption for lou wallace for what mm-hmm. he did because it, the story came out and said, you know what this is what this guy did actually was was pretty substantial because we didn't get our guys there till they really right when when early was getting there. So what what would have happened if they didn't have really ended up being two and a half days he saved the battle the day he rested the yeah. next day and then a half a day on the eleventh right September eighteen sixty four that September Wallace and Grant will actually meet to talk about this. They'll sit down they'll talk about it. Now there's no real talk about what they talked about, but Wallace did say in his in his letter or whoever he wrote a letter to that this he said a defeat did more for me than the victories i've been engaged in so my guess is grant said all right you did good grant does say that in his memoirs he says if early had been one but one day earlier he might have entered the capital before the arrival of reinforcements i had sent general wallace contributed on this occasion by the defeat of the troops under him a greatest benefit to the cause then often falls to the lot of a commander of an equal force to render by means of a victory. So in other words, Grant is saying Wallace lost the battle, but he saved, you know, he he bought us the time, like he's giving him the credit. And I think it's like, you know, immediately after the battle, like Grant's like, okay, Ord, you're in charge of his men. And Wallace is just kind of like in charge of the middle department. But then Wallace gets reinstated on July 28th once 
stuff starts coming out of mm-hmm. what, what he's done at Monocacy. And the other thing Wallace says too is that these men died to save the national capital and they did save it. They did. They certainly did. That's a monument you can go visit a still Monocacy today. So what's interesting is time goes on and people still don't study what Wallace did. They really don't. No. Now, thir- 35 years after the battle, Wallace, he'll, he's going to write Ben-Hur in 1882, I think, right around Which there. He's gonna, he's f- gonna, that's right. his big fuck you to Grant. Right. He writes that letter to Grant. He's famous for this, this at this time. Now he's a famous guy. He's going to have dinner with John Gordon, who he fought, obviously, at this battle, Monocacy, yeah. who was a senator from the state of Georgia at this point. And Gordon said he wanted to make the acquaintance of the only man who whipped me during the war. It was funny because Wallace allegedly had reminded him Hey, um, you kind of kicked my ass, right? And then Gordon said, Monocacy snatched Washington out of our hands. Because that was the defeat he was talking about. What this battle does, it ultimately mentioned before, it's an underrated and understudied battle because it's in the middle of Petersburg. It's the middle of Atlanta. And it's a union loss. Yeah. Sometimes there, there are things that happen that you lose the battle, but you win the war. And this is certainly one of them. And that's why this battle to this day, is still going to be called the Battle of Save Washington. And it's very significant. And I was just thinking that, you know, some of these battles that, you know, really, really get studied, like Gettysburg, Antietam, Chickamauga, and all them, I wonder to go back and ask the generals that fought in them, what was the most significant battle you fought in? What changed the course of the war? That we might hear some different answers. We might hear, you know, and I just thought of that now at the top of my head with, you know, if you ask John Gordon, he, he would probably say, Monocacy, because we lost the capital. And because of that, it, it was done. Maybe in his eyes, that was the end of the war. You know, to go back and ask some of these guys, what were the significant battles? I'm sure a lot of them would say, would say things like Ball's Bluff, Stones River. And we might not hear things like Gettysburg mm-hmm. as much from them. We might hear about some of these smaller battles. I just thought of that now. Well, it's interesting because they went, early guys went into this campaign with the weight of the world on their shoulders, thinking their fate of the country rested upon them. Yep. So there's probably some truth to that. I think if you, you know, John, John Gordon, if you were to ask him, if you take your Ouija board down to Oakland Cemetery mm-hmm. in Atlanta, you may get an answer, but he probably would have said that. You know, early, he would go on to continue the, the Valley campaign throughout 1864. Eventually, he'll end up, he'll end up fighting uh, Phil Sheridan. Sheridan will beat his ass senseless. And then eventually, Lee is going to fire early. And what's interesting is early would say years after the war, that you know, he one of his greatest achievements was was being fired by Lee. Mm-hmm. He says that he had framed his letter of termination. He would show everyone who came over. Yep. Because it was a letter from Robert E. Lee. But again, what Monocacy did is it it was kind of that that thing that happens in the that play that happens in a football game. No one remembers because of the results. But then you watch the replay and go, oh, I forgot about that play. If that didn't happen. Everything could have changed. Yeah. And that's what this was. To your point, if they got into DC. Or Washington, they would have ransacked, they would have burned it, they would have done everything they did, like to Hagerstown or Chambersburg, all the stuff, all that towns, Frederick, they would have demanded money. But it would have been a psychological nightmare, especially if Lincoln fled the town before exactly. the election. Yeah. So you want to talk about a what if? Holy shit. Yeah. This right is there. this is up there with like something like Stone Server, Balls Bluff as well, you know, just for the ramifications that it has. And like I said, I think if you could go back and ask some of these generals, they pro- they they might say something like that over something like, Oh yeah, well I was at Gettysburg and it was a big battle, but in terms of the outcome and how it affected us, something like Monocacy might be higher on their list. Mm-hmm. It's certainly one worth talking about. Hopefully 
people will study it going forward. I hope it's uh people enjoy the listen to this episode. So I think it's a lot of fun to study. It's one mm-hmm. of the one of my more favorite ones. If you ever visit Monocacy, which if you're at Gettysburg, it's about 40 minutes away. It's an easy ride right through Frederick. It's kind of a weird battlefield because like that highway goes right through it. It's got a really cool visitor center and some places you can visit. It's kind of split up in two halves. You get the best farm on one side of it. And then you got the Monocacy River, and then you've got the Worthington and Thomas Farm on the other. But it's a really great place to go. It's a beautiful vista um, and definitely one that you should definitely check out. Because like I said before, Barry, all battlefields matter, don't they? They absolutely do. And one of the reasons we know about Monocacy and the reason it is a battlefield now is because of Glenn Worthington, who witnessed the Battle of the Age of Six. And then in the 1920s, he finally wrote down an account of it, and it was the first history that anybody had ever written about that battle. And that's interesting battlefield because it wasn't made an official battlefield until the 1970s. Exactly. Yeah. They recognized it in the 1930s, but then the preservation doesn't begin until the 1970s. And so if you look at it, if you go into Google Earth and look at it, there's a big industrial development on the north side where Ramsar's guys would have come down. There's trees to block it. Uh, but but it's certainly one that's totally worth visiting. So I think we can probably leave it there yep. and send the boys off. And hopefully we did Lou Wallace and the rest of the, the boys some justice on this one. So what's next, Mary? So next week we are talking uh, First Battle of Bull Run. But before that, we are having our roundtable next Wednesday, so July the 21st. So if you've never attended our roundtable, um, it's just kind of we get together via Zoom, 6 o'clock till about 730 Uh, Wednesday, July 21st, Eastern time. I will mention that because I know we have some people that join us from Lake California. And it's just basically like you're sitting in a bar or a coffee shop and you're talking about the Civil War. We don't really have a topic. So if you've never attended before and you would like an invite, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And we will make sure that you get an invite to our roundtable. And we would love to have you join us if you've never joined us before, because it's a really good group of people that come on there to talk Civil War with us. Like I said, first bull run. And then after that, episode to be determined. But we will determine what that one is soon. Hey, just let me know. You might, you might want to let me know. <laughs> I will let you know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, off we go once again. So again, great episode. Always fun to talk about the, um, the I don't want to say lesser battles, but certainly the lesser study battles. Because I think this is one that I don't think anybody who fought in this would ever say was a lesser battle. But it was certainly one that um, had huge ramifications despite it's nine-hour battle, relatively small numbers in the fact that it was a union loss that ultimately led to a bigger picture victory in the mm-hmm. end. So off we go. So any final words from you, Fincheru? Oh, thank you for everyone for listening. Um, and thank you to you for being the awesome co-host you are and dealing with my Tuesday moods. Well, I got those DQ gift certificates. So I'm going to keep talking. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> I know how to keep All you right. involved in this then. <laughs> I'm an easy person to satisfy. Ooh. So there we go. Wow. Okay. All right. So, hey, it was a good time as well. So we will look forward to talking to you soon. Look forward to hearing people on the uh, the live on Saturday. And then the, the round table coming up down the road. So off we go. So again, Mary, I say many times, the pleasure as always is always yours. And we will look forward to talking to you as we go off into our next episode as we head towards Manassas and Bull Run. See you guys later. Peace out. Bye.